Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, hey, welcome to Liquid, everyone. Glad you're here. I want to give a big special welcome. We have a lot of campuses joining us through the magic of the big screen. Would you welcome our sister campuses all around New Jersey? Or if you're on Church Online, welcome. I'm Pastor Tim. Glad you're here for our brand new series, Games People Play. And we're going to have a lot of fun today. Um, you know, one of our core values at Liquid is that church is fun. And we kind of want to round out our, our summer just kind of with a fun-to-be-us kind of series. And I think it'll get you learning and laughing. I know our last series was like, you know, a pretty intense, right? It was about race and faith and the state of affairs here in America. Very eye-opening, very intense. So we figure, let's talk about, you know, Pokemon and church. That's going to lighten it up a little, right? Actually, this series is more than uh, just about games like Scrabble or Jenga, but the deeper lessons, really, about life and faith that I think all these kind of games can, can teach us. So we're going to have some fun, take you back to your childhood, okay? little nostalgia moment. This will show your age. Quick show of hands. How many of you grew up playing Monopoly? You've played Monopoly before. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, we played that growing up. I remember learning, right, in life, money is important, and if you don't have enough, you go to jail, right? That's how that works in America. Uh, how about Clue? Anyone play Clue? Remember that detective game, right? It was like it was always Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick, you know, or something like that. My favorite as a kid, a little bit violent, Rock'em Sock'em Robots. You guys remember this, right? A red and a blue ro robot trying to knock each other's heads off. It's like the presidential election. It's amazing. Um, how about Atari? This will show your age. Did anyone original Atari? Oh, yeah, I love Pong. Pong Asteroids. Donkey Kong. Anyone Donkey Kong? That took about five years of my life was invested in this game. If you're under 40, okay, no, no Donkey Kong, no Mario Brothers. I'm going to put this in context for you, okay? Uh, how about, I remember it kind of morphed, right? Atari, then it was like PlayStation, then Xbox. How many people Xbox? You acknowledge you have one, okay? Some people are watching at home online playing while they're listening to this, okay? A lot of people don't even bother anymore with the television kind of, you know, video games. Most of us have games on our phones, Right? Right now, if I ask, take out your phone, what games do you have on there? Who will acknowledge they have Candy Crush? Who will acknowledge they play Candy Crush at some point? Okay. Yeah. Who, who, whoever it is who keeps inviting me on Facebook to play, stop. All right? Just stop that. Angry Birds? Any Angry Birds people here? Okay. One angry person in the back. Rage issues. Okay. Cool. Words with friends? Kind of like modern day Scrabble. Okay, cool, yeah. We have all sorts of games, right, to kind of occupy our time or distract us from reality. But what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at four popular games and the deeper biblical truth that we can learn from each. Because really the best games teach you kind of a, a larger lesson about life that you can apply in a lot of ways and some lessons about faith and following God. So here's what I'm going to do. Every week we're going to take a vintage game like Monopoly or a modern classic, like Pokemon Go. How many of you acknowledge you, you Pokemon Go? You, uh, okay. How many of you are looking for Pikachu right now? Okay. Here. Yeah. If, some of you are like, what? Just wait. Um, what we're going to do today, I was like, let's start easy. Okay. We're not going to get into technology yet right away. We'll get to Pokemon. But I want to kick off the series with a game that was super popular when I was a kid. I spent hours on my back deck playing this game. Let's see if you can recognize it. I'm going to pull it off. Does anybody recognize Connect Four, yeah, you remember this? Connect Four, classic game from Milton Bradley, and if you don't know how it works, 
we found the commercial from 1981. Check this out. The name of the game is Connect Four. Gotcha, four cross. Hmm, one more game. Object, connect four of your checkers in a row while preventing your opponent from doing the same. But look out, your opponent can sneak up on you and win the game. I won. Where? I can't... Here, diagonally. Pretty sneaky, sis. Connect Four, the vertical checkers game from Milton Bradley. I remember that commercial, pretty sneaky, sis. And I was like, you know what, we've got to do a little demo here. And so we have the Latino Vanna White of liquid uh, up here, Kyra, and uh, Kyra, we're gonna play real quick, quick game. We didn't prepare this ahead of time, just spontaneous, but we gotta do it quick. So we're gonna take like three seconds to move, okay? Obviously you can get it horizontally, vertically, diagonally. You're the lady, go ahead, let's start. Team Blue, Team Kyra, Team Pastor Tim, please pray for Tim. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Red, no, take too long, too long. That's too long there. You gotta keep going, you gotta keep going. You're not gonna get me there. See, I blocked her. Ooh, careful, careful, what happened there? I get a couple extra because of what just happened there, I think. I'm pretty sure I get a little, little extra there. As no! Ah! Man, I was so distracted. That was so unfair. Did you see that? Go like that, man. We're going to keep having services until I win a game. That's going to be... You got to get the idea, right? You got to connect four, and I can't believe it, one, two, three, four in a row. How did I not see this? Uh, <laughs> while trying to block your opponent, obviously. And uh, it's kind of interesting, right? Because the game's like, hey, if you get four in a row, you, you win, you're the victor. And the reality is kind of in the spiritual life too, our, our, our journey of kind of following Jesus, there are these four pieces that you have to put together. And if you only have like two or three, you'll grow, but you will hit a roadblock. And what we found is in the scriptures, the New Testament, if you look at the life of the early church, they put these four things together and not only walked in spiritual victory, they experienced like supernatural breakthrough. I want to show these to you. If you remember last week, remember Jesus prayed that the church, that's us, modern Christians, would be one as he and the Father and the Son, our spirit, are one. In other words, he prayed that you and I would be so deeply connected connected to God, connected to one another, and then the world will know, right, that the reality of Christ is true. So connection is the key to the Christian life, and there are these four core kind of ingredients or pieces that the early church put together to experience it. What are they, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, okay? So if you have a Bible, or you can flip in your phone, Acts 2, we're going to look at verse 42. We'll put that up on the screen and learn how to connect four together. The word acts actually stands for actions, okay? So these are like the actions of the early church. This is what the disciples did once Jesus left and said, establish the church, and here's how it's going to work. And here in Acts 2, you're going to see these four core practices that connected the early Christians to God and to one another. Let's see if you can spot them. Acts 2, verse 42, it reads this. It says, they, that is the early Christians, they devoted themselves to, number one, everyone together, apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Did you catch all four, right? What four activities the early Christians uh, devote themselves to that connected them deeply to God and one another? One, the apostles' teaching. Two, the fellowship. If you're taking notes, you can kind of fill these in. Go ahead, slide person. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
when the early church put these two, one, two, three, four practices together, they experienced supernatural breakthrough. I'm serious. There was like this supernatural release of God's power in the church. Look at what verse 43 says. It says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. In other words, signs, wonders, and miracles took place in this church because the early followers of Jesus connected, number one, the apostles' teaching. What is that? In other words, they had this commitment to the truth of Scripture and God's Word. That's why we teach from the Bible every single Sunday. That's what we're doing. It's foundational to growing a faith that's mature in Jesus Christ. But then two, they had fellowship. Fellowship means they had this deep friendship with one another. They cared for one another. They had a kinship of souls. And then breaking of bread, okay? Some of you are like, oh, food in church. That's me. The early church regularly came around the table, not just for communion, but to have this thing they called a love feast. I'll tell you more about this in a minute. And then prayer. Prayer was really the engine of the power of the early church. No church is more powerful than when it's on its knees in prayer, when we're knocking on heaven's door, asking actually God for a fresh outpouring and release of his spirit in our life and in the church. That's when the miraculous takes place, the signs, wonders, miracles. And that's what the early church did. They had these one, two, three, four core practices, and they not only experienced victory, they really had this breakthrough. So I want to look briefly at each one and then ask you a question. As you think about your own walk with Christ, which of these areas is strongest and which is weakest? Where is there a gap in your game? Look at all four of these in your walk with God. Take a look at the first one right there, Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what does that actually mean? There's a passage, I think, that helps explain this. In Matthew 28, um, it's kind of Jesus' final commands to his disciples before he returns to heaven. And he tells them in Matthew 28, verse 19, he says this, go and make what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you've probably heard that verse before. When Jesus says, go make disciples, it's very simple. A disciple is somebody who says, hey, Jesus is my Lord, and I am going to follow him with my life. I'm committed to learning to walk in the ways of Jesus. He's my Savior. And when people make that commitment, they're a Christian. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. We talked about that last week. But then what's interesting is a lot of people don't know the verse after that. Jesus says this, then teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you and be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, Jesus spent 33 years, he was on earth, and about three of those he spent teaching the original 12 disciples. And they said, now that I'm about to leave, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go teach other disciples. In other words, what's the mark of a true disciple of Christ? By definition, a disciple helps teach new disciples. It's this process of multiplication. And that's what the apostles are doing here. They're teaching new Christians how, how to obey Jesus' commands. How do they live as a Christian in a wacky kind of warped world? In John 15, Jesus says, if you truly love me, you will obey my commands. And so the apostles obeyed. Every week, they opened up the scriptures and shared the teachings and stories of Jesus with the people. Now, that's what we do on Sundays. Those same stories and teachings are recorded in the Bible that we have today. That's where the apostles' teaching is. We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And then we have the epistles. Epistles is like a letter. These are the letters that a lot of the apostles wrote to the early church. And so you probably notice every week here at Liquid, we, it's pretty simple, right? Our church, we're devoted to teaching from the word of God. 
Whenever I teach you, I'm not sharing like, hey, here are Tim Lucas's thoughts and ideas about whatever topic. 2,000 years later, we actually have congregations all across the state, but we're here to gain wisdom and truth from God's word. Not how the culture sees the world, but how God sees it. So understand, the first foundational move, if you are going to connect for spiritually, is being devoted to the apostles' teaching, okay? That's our foundation. We're people of the world, of the word. Well, some of us are people of the world. That's a great question for you. Are you a person of the word or are you a person of the world? What really shapes you? I mean, it's a challenge, isn't it? Sometimes our best efforts to conform to the truth of Christ, how to live, how to think, how to walk like Christ, honestly, gets blocked. Instead of being shaped by the word of God, we are shaped more by the world. We conform to the culture and compromise our beliefs. I think a lot of Christians today are what I would call chameleon Christians. Everyone say chameleon. Yeah. I want to give credit to my friend, uh, Pastor Chris Morani, for this, this phrase. He says, a lot of people are like chameleon Christians. You know what a chameleon Christian is? They just kind of blend in with their surroundings, right? Wherever they are, whether it's at school or gym or the workplace, whatever, they just kind of blend in. They don't want to stick out. They're like, you know, people aren't too friendly to Christians nowadays, not very popular. I don't want to offend anybody. So I just sort of blend into my surroundings. So at the office or over lunch, you know, when, when coworkers are, you know, we're just kind of, you know, shooting it around. They're kind of telling those jokes or they're talking that way. And we're like, oh, gosh, I know that's not what Jesus wants for me, but I just want to blend in. Or when we're around other people and they start to gossip and they start to criticize others, we know that's not in line with Jesus' command to walk in the truth, but we just blend in. See, if you are not anchored in the truth and person of Christ, you will inevitably find yourself compromising in key areas because that's just what the world does. And before long, you become a chameleon Christian. Your attitudes and your actions get shaped by the world, and you're no longer shaped by the word of God. Your thinking actually begins warping and distorting like the world's. But the Bible calls us this totally different approach. In Romans 12, the apostle Paul actually commands Christ followers everywhere. He says this, he says, do not, what's the word? Say it out loud. Conform to the pattern of this world. Instead, be what? transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you're going to think a certain way, the world's pattern, but I want you to be transformed. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, you don't think straight until your mind is saturated in Scripture. That's when you begin seeing reality for what it really is. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You do not see the truth on the nightly news. You do not see the truth on Netflix. You do not see the truth on iTunes. I'm not saying all those things are evil, but they're pretty much just the pattern of the world, the way the world works. And the reality is, you will conform to the pattern of the world if that's your only intake. But Paul says, as a Christian, your mind's supposed to be transformed or changed by the truth of God's word. See, the Bible isn't just a collection of stories or moral principles. It is truth that transforms your life. It breaks the spell of chameleon Christianity and kind of wakes us up to God's perspective, which, watch, is often counterculture to the world. Let me be very clear about this. If you're a Christian, God didn't call you to blend in. God has called you to stand up and to stick out, to actually stand for truth in a world that has lost its moral compass. It feels like nowadays we're living in the time of judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But once in a while, a Christ follower will actually hear the call of Christ to stand up and stick out. I'll give you a great example of that last week. 
Last Sunday, I told you how I failed, right, as a Christ follower to stick up for my friend uh, Eduardo. Eduardo, if you remember, immigrant guy from Nicaragua, joined our high school baseball team where his teammates really belittled, bullied, used racist slurs, were very cruel towards Eduardo. And I was 15 years old, and I failed. I failed to stand up. I failed to speak up for my friend. I knew that was wrong, that Christ would call me to do more, but I was a freshman. I just didn't want to be treated the same way. And so I became a chameleon Christian. I just blended into the locker room, just kind of went along and, you know, whatever. Well, after the service, this was so cool, a woman came up to me. She said, Pastor Tim, you may have failed to stand up against racist behavior, but I didn't last month. I was like, tell me about it. (laughs) She goes, last month, I was getting a pedicure at a salon. I was like, New Jersey, no way. You know, like, come on, right? She goes, so I'm sitting in one of those chairs. She goes, and there were actually three other women sitting in chairs, and we're all kind of waiting. And there's only one manicurist assigned to do, you know, all four of these nails. She was a Hispanic woman, and she said, and the salon was kind of understaffed, and so we're all kind of waiting, and she's moving as fast as she can, but it's not going very quickly. And she goes, and then the owner of the salon, actually, uh, he was Asian, and he came over, and he said to our Hispanic manicurist, he said, faster, you need to do this quicker, you need to work faster, remember, I own you. And she said, I felt this righteous rage, like, well up in me. And she goes, I stood up in the middle of the salon, and I said, how dare you speak to her like that? She is a child of God made in in his image, and you don't own anybody. As long as I live, I'll never come back here again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just wait. This gets even better. It set off a chain reaction. The woman next to her stood up and said, I'm not coming here again either. And then both of them stepped out of their tub in their bare feet, and they took $50 out of their purse, and they said, this is what we were going to spend in this store. We're never coming back. This is for you. And they gave it to the manicurist, and two other women stood up, and they said, us too, and they walked out together. Praise God. I was like, that's awesome. That is standing up and sticking out. I love it. That is not being a Christian chameleon. (laughs) That is saying, I'm a follower of Christ, and where I see injustice and someone who has no voice, I'm going to stand up and prophetically speak out against the racism for somebody who has no power, no voice. So good on you. That woman knew the word of God. She literally stood up against the culture. That's a bold move there. That's a bold move. But understand, anytime you try to stand up, guess what? Your enemy wants to block you, wants to keep you living a smaller, quieter life. Don't make waves. Just blend in instead of actually proclaiming God's truth boldly, which is very counterculture. What's the point? The first step in the game plan of God for spiritual victory is saying, you know what? I'm going to commit myself to the apostles' teaching, to the truth of God's word. That's what we do every week when we open up the Bible and we say, how do we learn to walk with Christ in a world that is very wicked and warped? Sunday's about mind renewal. My goal is to always speak to your heart and to challenge your mind with God's truth so that you're actually equipped to walk with Jesus, whether it's in the workplace or on campus in a nail salon, (laughs) in a courageous way that's really uncompromised during the week. The early church was committed first to the apostles' teaching, but then notice what they were devoted to after that. It says the fellowship. Now, what's the fellowship? Basically, the idea is this, guys. To grow as a disciple of Jesus, you don't just need solid Bible teaching. It can't just be you and Jesus. You need friends to grow alongside with. That's the the second step in the Connect Four strategy if you look here in Acts. It says they committed themselves to the fellowship. And if you want to write in your notes, it just means friendship. But again, I got to, we don't get this. 
We're like, oh, I have a lot of friends on Facebook. I have friends, right? It wasn't like Facebook friends. Fellowship here means this bone-deep kinship that connects people at like a heart and soul level. In fact, Scripture uses a special word for the fellowship. It uses the word koinonia in Greek. Everyone say koinonia. It's used about 20 times in the New Testament. And koinonia basically goes beyond like, hey, we're casual acquaintances, or even superficial friends. We see each other at church every Sunday morning. To this kind of co-mingling of souls. It's like knitting hearts together. We're different people are so deeply connected to God and then deeply connected to each other that it becomes a supernatural source of unity and love. In other words, they don't just accept others like friends. They love each other like family. This is literally what Jesus prayed for in John 17, koinonia. He says a picture that they may be one as we are one, Father. It's this connection that God wants with his church and us to have with one another. And guys, it is so much more than a group of people who gather together for 60 minutes on a Sunday morning and then go home, right? Instead of a, ch- a social club, God's like, I want my church to have koinonia, this deep community where we're marked by our love for one another. One another is a key phrase. In fact, New Testament, you will see the phrase one another 97 times. Here's some of the things that the New Testament says to do with one another. I want you to love one another. I want you to honor one another. I want you to pray for one another. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to care for one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Carry one another's burdens. Watch this. There's 100 one another commands that you cannot obey unless you're in community. In other words, it's impossible, actually, to follow Jesus alone. You have to be in koinonia community to actually follow Christ. If you're a Lone Ranger Christian, it's actually impossible to obey that way. So the early church, it says, they were, like, devoted to one another, this, this beautiful koinonia, but they weren't gossiping about one another. They weren't, you know, criticizing one another. If you were sick, they were like, we're going to pray for one another. If you had a baby, they're like, we're going we're gonna to practice hospitality with one another. We're going to bring over a meal. If there was conflict, it was like, we're going to actually restore relationship and forgive one another. It's a beautiful picture. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of a church like that? Here's the problem. Pretty hard to do this kind of intimate fellowship in 60 minutes on a Sunday morning. I mean, let's be honest. Our time of connection is pretty limited, right? A lot of times our connection amounts to like after the first few songs, you know, your campus leader gets up and says, turn to the person next to you and give them a high five or a holy fist bump, right? You know, koinonia. <laughs> Not exactly, right? This isn't like the depth of fellowship. It's just breaking the ice so people don't feel awkward. But the true fellowship, that deeply connected community here in Acts 2, this actually happens outside of Sunday. Here's what Acts 2 says about the early church, how they did it. It says, every day, they continued to meet together in where? The temple court. So they went to the big church. But then watch, they broke bread where? In their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Notice there were two kinds of gatherings, right? The first thing they did is say, hey, we're going to have the large group that gets together at the temple. That's the big old crowd right at the church, right? But then it says, then they broke bread in homes. That is, after Sunday was over, they broke up in these smaller groups of fellowship and met in homes during the week. That's how they forged koinonia, Monday through Friday. Again, it's funny. A lot of people are like, wow, Liquid's a very you know, modern, cutting-edge church. We're a modern church, but we follow a very ancient model, okay? Small groups are core to our community. It is how we make a big church like ours feel small 
and we go deeper in relationship with one another. If, again, if you're new to our church, one of the things we like to say is that circles are stronger than rows. What are you sitting in right now? You're sitting in a row, hundreds of people, right? But in a small group, you actually turn the chairs inside. Now we have eight or ten people all facing each other, and it's where you get to go deeper with one another. You actually connect on a, a soul level and support each other. And if you're not in a small group, this is a vital next step to take because this is where life change truly happens. Here's what we learn on Sunday, but this is how we apply it to life Monday through Friday. Groups are where we bear each other's burdens, and then it's where we have a chance to serve one another in beautiful ways. Let me show you a beautiful picture of this. There's a liquid small group in, uh, in Somerset County, and each week they meet in, in a home for Bible study and prayer, and they eat together and all that. But then <laughs> their, their care for one another spills out to their neighbors in need, and they serve in life-changing ways. I want to show you what this one small group did. They went to remodel a transitional home for homeless families and victims of domestic violence at our summer outreach. Check out this koinonia. Our group decided to serve in this outreach study just because we love to serve. Um, everyone in our group is involved in the church, either family ministries, roadies, uh, greeting team. Um, you know, we just love to, we love what Liquid is doing as far as being the hands and feet. I just love that and our group does too. It's an amazing life group because we represent a diverse group of people that are at different stages and ages in their life. Some are retired with grandchildren, some are married with kids still in the house, and some are single, and yet we all come together and have an amazing time. I think it's more meaningful and fun to serve as a group because you get to bond together, you get to work side by side with each other. It's just. It's just great. I mean, uh, our group is amazing and we're just, we're a real tight group. It's, it's fun. We know each other so well that when one of our life group members was leaving Liquid Church on a Sunday morning after volunteering, and my husband looked at her and said, are you okay? You, you don't look good. And she wasn't okay. We were all there together in that one second and Bill Mazuko, our life group leader, immediately took her to the hospital and it was critical and life-saving and life-changing. So at that point, because we're so well connected again with our life groups and our pastor, I went to the pastor and said, this is what's happened. And he asked the whole congregation to pray. That's the power of the life group. For other groups, I'd like to encourage them to get out and serve together. It, it's amazing being with them in a different environment than just in a, a living room studying about Jesus, but to be out there doing this stuff with Jesus with your group. It's, it's a bonding thing, it's great, it's fun. I'd encourage them to do it. Sign up as a group, see what your interests are and volunteer, try it. And there's nothing to lose. You'll actually, you'll meet new people outside of your life group. And then when you see the finished product, there's such pride in knowing that you did a little bit to make such a difference in somebody's life. So I would say serve often and serve together. That beautiful can we hear for that life group i love that picture to me that's a picture of the church at its best right these guys they love god they love one another and now it's flowing out to a community in some deeply powerful ways this is a transitional home again for two homeless families living there currently at the time single single moms with their kids 
And on the inside, this group, they actually did all, they did new flooring, they put in new furniture. The old furniture was actually uh, saturated with urine. It was, it was a, ter- a terrible situation. And they come in here and transform the place. On the outside, they landscaped, they did, you know, bushes, tree, you know, uh, mulch, the whole thing. And then this one, you saw them kind of, they were laying a brand new patio. They knocked it out in a single afternoon. And one of the moms, who has a five-year-old son, she just kind of had tears in her eyes afterwards. She says, my son no longer has a house. He finally has a home. Isn't that beautiful? They're like a platoon of koinonia commandos, you know? The small groups, guys, attend on Sunday, and that's where we get our marching orders. But what happens is then we meet in homes during the week to pray and care for each other, and then we go out into our community to show the love of God in action. That's powerful. That's the kind of fellowship and purpose that God designed you for. So I want to challenge you. If you are not currently in a small group at your campus, what are you waiting for? You need to sign up. You need to join one because we're starting that process now. In September, groups are forming. And in October, we are launching an eight-week small groups campaign that everybody's going to be involved with. It is church-wide. So you've come at a perfect time. If you aren't in a group, or I'm going to also challenge a couple of you who are in a group right now. Would you consider leading a group this fall? I want you to open up your program. Inside today, we put a little sign-up card that looks like this, and I want everyone just to, to amuse me right now. If you take it out and wave it like this, like you're hot, go, woo, this is a hot sermon. Go ahead, just wave it around just so I can see that you got it. You'll notice the card says, hey, I'm interested in leading a life group, and, and you're like, well, what does it take? Do I have to be a Bible scholar? No. Look, do you love Jesus, love people, and love liquid? That's the bar, okay? You have to have all your teeth and not hate our church. Like, it's a pretty low bar. If you're interested, we're going to have a short leader information session. Very brief thing during the second service every Sunday from now all the way until Labor Day. And if you are interested, and maybe some of you are like, you know what? I've been coming for a while. I, I'm in a group, but maybe this is my next step to actually lead a Koinonia fellowship, to have that kind of deep community. I want to encourage you to do that. My wife and I, Colleen and I, actually, we do, again, one of the things about our church is to understand, I never ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. And so my wife, Colleen, and I, we've actually filled out a card. We're like, you know what? It's time for us to lead a group. And so we're leading a group this fall. And in fact, it's kind of interesting. My daughter, uh, who's entering high school, she is actually starting a new life group. We're going to host it in our home. We actually filled out another card. Okay, we'll host high schoolers in our home. And uh, it's really exciting for us because, again, now I'm not a pastor. Let me just talk to you as a dad. All right? My daughter, who is going into high school as a freshman, she now has... These two incredible mentors, these are young uh, women in our congregation who are in their 20s, they're women of God, and you know what? They got something that I don't have, which is they're cool, okay? And so they're actually going to lead that group in our home with about, you know, 10 high schoolers pouring into them. As a parent, what more can you ask for? It's just an incredibly powerful thing, and so what we're going to do is sync up all the adult groups with all the high school groups this fall. So adults and students, we're all going to be learning together. So if you're a parent of a high schooler, just saying, you need to make sure that they sign up and get in a group too, especially if they're going into ninth grade, okay? This is core to who we are as a church. So it's not too late. New groups are forming now. And if you're like, hey, I'd be willing to step up and lead, that is your next step. Fill this out. We'll collect at the end of the the message today. But notice, watch, some of you are like, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. Because the enemy would love nothing more than to keep you isolated this fall. If you start taking a step towards, like, I'm going to do more than come on Sunday, I'm going to join a group, the enemy will say, no, 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 no. You you don't have time. Your calendar is too busy. Your schedule is insane. Lucas is smoking pot. Don't do it. 
just go on Sunday, that's enough, 60 minutes. No, no, no. The early church, Sunday teaching, they committed themselves small group fellowship. Those are steps one and two in the Connect Four strategy of the early church. And you saw the third step is appetizers, breaking of bread. This means a lot more, okay, than jalapeno poppers, people. Look, look Christians love to eat, right? <laughs> you hang around church, there's always food around. Not always the highest quality either. Church I grew up in, uh, they had this thing called like a potluck dinner. You ever have that, potluck? Potluck, by the, it's, like, it's like Greek for bring the weirdest casserole you can think of, you know? We'd have this in the church gym, you know, and I'd go in and it'd be like, oh, is this string bean and yams casserole? Is this a mysterious green jello mold? Praise God. I did not enjoy church food growing up. But here in Acts, breaking of bread has a deeper meaning, okay, than a crappy buffet in the gym. In the Middle East, the early Christians, they'd open their homes, they'd invite others in, and they'd had what they called table fellowship. It was a way you showed honor and respect to your friends. And what they had was called an agape meal, which translates to love feast. Okay, everyone get your best Barry White voice right now and turn your neighbor and go, love feast. <laughs> no, don't do that. That's weird. I know it's a joke. <laughs> See, this guy over here is like, what the? <laughs> I love have some cherry wine, you know, kind of. This wasn't just about breaking bread. This actually was a love feast. Was like this. It was like three, four hour long kind of celebration. They'd sing songs. They'd have a meal. But then it would culminate in the breaking of bread, where they would basically celebrate communion or, or the Eucharist, if you're from a Catholic background, or the Lord's Supper. After the dishes were cleared, the early Christians would reenact the Lord's Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. As 1 Corinthians records, it says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took what, church? Took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So breaking bread was an early symbol of the way Jesus' body was broken on the cross. It says, in the same way, on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then they would pray and then they would partake together. It's really beautiful. First, they, would, they were celebrating their freedom in Christ with a, a larger dinner. But then they said, it all comes down to this, the price that our Savior paid to forgive our sins and make us family. And they did that regularly as a way to proclaim the Lord's death. They said, you know what? The cross is central to who we are, but understand Jesus is coming again. So understand, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion, whatever you want to call it, the early Christians had this at the center of the worship. They called it a love feast. It was a symbol of the sacrificial love of Jesus dying on the cross. And you know what? 2,000 years later, it's still the centerpiece of our faith. In fact, we're going to partake of communion in a few minutes when I close out this message. But if you're new, you should know this. At Liquid, we typically have communion once a month. People say, when do you do communion? Typically, it's one time a series, so every you know, three or four weeks. But we also encourage our small groups to celebrate communion as well together in their homes. You see the, you see the Connect Four strategy starting to develop, taking place? The early church, they devote themselves the apostles' teaching to the, the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And finally, the fourth was what? Prayer, yeah. Prayer was the final practice 
that connected for us spiritually and gave that church its power. At Liquid, we really believe like a church is never more powerful than when it's on its knees praying, knocking on heaven's door, saying, God, refresh your spirit in me, in our church. And the early Christians, they, were, they knew how to pray. They just like pray little, you know, bless my food kind of prayers, you know, privately at home. They prayed publicly and they prayed with great passion. They waited on the Lord in prayer. In fact, it was while they were waiting on the Lord in the upper room that the Holy Spirit came and fell in power on them. It was while they waited during the pers- facing persecution. Very hostile culture for a century of the Christians. That's the moment they realized their strength doesn't come from their own ability, but from God's faithfulness. And Acts 41 says, here was the result. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was what? Shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God, what? Boldly. You ever been in a a prayer service that shakes the room? Okay, we're going to simulate an earthquake right now. Not really. (laughs) I actually had experience like this. It's kind of, I'll never forget this. It was very, about 10 years ago, I was preaching at this Baptist church. I'm talking about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And as I close in prayer, literally the roof of the church starts shaking, the windows start rattling, and in the lobby, two of the doors flew open, like literally while we're praying, and like people were like, the rapture! They were like freaking out, okay? <laughs> Freak storm, a tornado actually touched down in New Jersey during the service. It went through the, the cemetery and kind of skipped over the church and went down 287. And, uh, and I was like, it was, it was freaking me out. I was like, that's a powerful prayer. And they're like, dude, it's a tornado. I was like, okay. You know, I thought, that was a natural shaking, okay? Here in Acts, this is a supernatural shaking. This is not a tornado. This is the Holy Spirit touching down on God's people, filling them and empowering them to be a bold witness for Christ. In the face of persecution, in the face of a hostile culture, you think Christians right now are facing hostility. This church said our strength is not in ourselves. Our strength is in God alone. Amen? And if you believe that, you will rely on the Holy Spirit in prayer. Litmus test right now. The things you're facing in your life right now that that have you worrying, think about it, whether it's a family situation or a health crisis or you're deciding whether to move, whatever that is, can I ask how much time and energy and mental effort and emotion did you devote this last week to worrying instead of praying. Because the reality is a lot of Christians see prayer as the last resort. And the early church says, oh no, that is our first response. Think about the situation that has you most anxious in your life. Did you spend time this week, all your energy, worrying, how am I going to get through it? How am I going to handle it? How can I get around it? Or praying, Heavenly Father, use your strength and work through me. Because the more trust you have for your Heavenly Father, the more you will rely on him to fight your battles. And like the early church to say, you know what? I'm waiting on God in prayer because my strength is not in my ability to cope, but in his promise to be faithful regardless of the circumstances. Amen? Prayer is the final connection point in the Connect Four strategy that led the early church to victory. It's prayer, guys, that overcomes the enemy's attempt to keep you anxious and fearful and intimidated. It's prayer that overcomes all that fear and anxiety, and you actually can experience peace And the freedom that comes, even when life is hard, but you know God is in control. Guys, this is what it takes to win. This is how you win as a Christian. This is how we win as a church. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, uh, somebody help me, look in your notes. What is it? 
Thank you, fellowship. Thank you, my friend, koinonia. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. What was the result? Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Who doesn't want to be part of a church like that? When the early church connected for, they unleashed heaven's power. And they saw supernatural breakthrough. Guys, that's what it means to connect for spiritually. So let me ask you this question in closing today. Are you winning? When you look at these four areas in your life right now, are you strong in one but maybe weak in another? Or are there gaps in your game? Are you like, honestly, I'm just limping along, the enemy's having his fun, and I'm conforming to the world? Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I'm strong in the apostles' teaching. I come on Sunday, but you realize, if you're honest, you're lacking fellowship. You are isolated and alone. That means you're an easy target for the enemy. If that's you, join a life group. If you're like, I've got more to give, lead a life group. Or maybe you've got fellowship, but when it comes to breaking of bread, meaning your intimacy with Christ, you're like, I'm that chameleon Christian. If I'm honest, Tim, I have been more formed and shaped by the world than I am the word of God, and I feel distant from Jesus. Good news. We are going to break bread. We are going to receive communion today. And communion is a time of renewal where you can come clean with God about where you really are spiritually and have full assurance of his forgiveness and his love and his mercy. So we're going to break bread in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to remind you about 1 Corinthians 11 because it says this, the church family. Paul says, everybody ought to what? Examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And what that means is examine yourself. It means take an inventory on the inside. Let's take some time for prayer and acknowledge to God how we're really doing. How are you doing? Is there a gap in your game in one of these areas? This is a moment just to confess your shortcomings to God. We all have them. There's no judgment. But this is a moment where communion is, we're coming into union with God. And so it's Jesus' blood and it's his body that promises we can be forgiven and made whole and restored. So let's close by actually being the body of Christ in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? We'll take just a couple minutes for personal prayer before we break bread together. Father, we're just opening up our hearts right now. We're doing what you said. We're coming together as a church family to break bread. But before we do, we're praying. And Father God, we're opening up our life to you. If you're here right now and you know that, hey, there's, there's no sin in your life, you just confess it to Jesus. He promises to forgive us and cleanse us. If there are weaknesses in your life, ask God for strength. Confess compromises and say, I'm recommitting my life to conform to the truth of God. Just take a minute or two for silent prayer right now and do business with God. Father, we thank you for your word today. You have not left us alone to figure things out by ourselves, but you have given us a clear roadmap to seek you and find you right now. God, this morning we have heard the apostles' teaching, 
And right now we are praying together as a fellowship and we're about to break bread as you commanded us to do. And so we thank you for the body and the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, which forgives our sin and restores a right relationship with you. Father, we admit we are weak, but you are strong. We confess we are unfaithful, but God, you are ever faithful. And so, Father, I ask right now that that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on your family right now in this church during communion. Father, I pray especially for people who feel far away or distant from you. Would you draw them close right now? Let them know that they are welcome at this table. You love them, Father. You gave your life for them, Jesus. Father, people who feel spiritually cold, warm them with the Holy Spirit, Father God. If they're struggling, let them know they're not alone. Surround them with the Holy Spirit so they may feel the warmth of your grace, love, and forgiveness. We receive these gifts from you. May there be breakthrough in our lives. And they all said together, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.